Welcome to What is California, a podcast featuring conversations with notable Californians in a quest to understand the Golden State. I'm your host, Stu Van Aersdale. It is episode 20 of our humble podcast. Huzzah! And for the occasion, we welcome Louis Vertel. Louis is a writer on Jimmy Kimmel Live. He is the co-host of the Crooked Media podcast, Keep It. He is a seasoned red carpet host for the Academy Awards. And he is known to millions for his viral clip of snapping at the correct answer of a daily double on Jeopardy back in 2015. If you haven't seen that, it's in the show notes. You really should go see it. But Lewis is a legend, hilarious, really, really smart, and just a true pleasure to talk to. You know, Lewis and I have known each other for a while. This is our first time talking uh, in years, but we both were part of MovieLine.com when that uh, brand, you might say, was resurrected in 2009. So uh, I was an editor there. He was a writer there. And uh, I was the last one off that doomed ship. But Lewis got out a little bit before that and has been off to uh, bigger, much better things for sure. We'll talk about all those better things and we'll talk about how California factors into them, whether it's, you know, working in late night, whether it's the kind of game show ecosystem that Lewis has been a part of over the years, obviously the Oscars red carpet, the film industry, pop culture, you name it, we discuss it. And uh, it was very illuminating. It's particularly illuminating for Lewis's choice of his favorite Californian. As you know, if you've heard this show before, or if you haven't heard the show before, we uh, ask every guest a lot of the same questions just to kind of get a sense of what people think about California in terms of what's their earliest memory of the state, what's their favorite place in the state, what are some challenges that California might surmount, and we always culminate with the final question, who's your favorite Californian past or present? Lewis had a great response to this. I won't spoil it, but you know, it's a big reason why I wanted to invite Lewis to be on the show, especially for this uh, milestone episode, episode 20, because you know stories like his are what this podcast is all about. Those very distinct California experiences and unexpected, unorthodox, unusual, and, you know, again, illuminating, enlightening perspectives on what the state means. So that's why we're here. That's what we do. And Lewis doesn't disappoint. So I'm so grateful to Lewis for being here. And I'm grateful to you, dear listener, for uh, keeping us going for 20 episodes. Hopefully there are many more to follow. But for now, I'll go ahead and get on with the show. Here is me with Louis Fertel on What is California? Enjoy. Louis Fertel, welcome to What is California? It's so great to have you here. How are you doing? I am great. I am full of endorphins that I am talking to you. I mean, you are among the like first, I think, like five colleagues I had in Los Angeles. So to be reunited with you is like, I don't know what your last perception of me is, but everything's changed. I'm totally different now. So don't worry. You're fantastic. So uh, I'm so glad to hear you're thriving and see you thriving. And I've been wanting to have you on the show for a while. So thank you for agreeing to join. You know, we'll talk about your work and your experience in LA in a little bit, but I just want to kind of start with your California story. Are you from here originally, or I guess how and when did you arrive here? I am from a suburb of Chicago called Lamont, which is a Southwest suburb. That's the uncool suburban area. It doesn't look anything like Home Alone over there. There's no, there's no Cusacks lingering around those suburbs. <laughs> yeah. And uh, in, in fact, uh, 
uh, I met one of my Chicagoland heroes, Liz Fair, not too long ago. No and way. I, and she's from the north suburbs, like where all those people are from, like New Trier High School. It's a very famous suburban Chicago area. And uh, I said, would someone like you ever have a reason to come to the southwest Chicago suburbs? And she laughed in my face. So uh, <laughs> that gives you some indication. But nice. I'm near like Downers Grove and Naperville and Joliet anyway. But uh, yeah, I, I was a, a very traditional. I had the best of a, a wholesome upbringing. I had parents who were initially Catholic who then eased off that and became rad. So uh, <laughs> uh, I have three, three brothers. And, and in fact, sometimes I think my humor runs accidentally a little fratty. And I think it's because they were around me growing up. And then eventually I moved to LA after I did an internship at The Advocate, the National uh, Gay Lesbian Magazine, when I was in college at Iowa. And uh, that was in 2009 I moved here. Okay, so you've been here about 13 years. Yep. And um, what part of California is home for you? Uh, I live in West Hollywood. I live in the eastern edge. I've been, I've lived a couple places in West Hollywood, but my my most uh, home-y feeling place is on the east side. I lived in Atwater Village behind my best friend, Andrew Cologne, for seven years. When I had a YouTube series, I would set up like a, a little stand with my friend Brad and film the entire thing in his guest house. Mm-hmm. So I, I lived a very, I, I, li- I literally lived in a carriage house for seven years, which is one of the seminal LA experiences that few people talk about. Did you always want to get to LA? Was that always the goal for you living in when you're growing up in the suburbs of Chicago? I honestly did not have much ambition to go anywhere because I was so like a mama's boy, really. Like I kind of thought, I don't know that I thought I would, that I would stay in Chicago my entire life, but I just, I did not have dreams of going away. That really felt frightening to me. And in fact, I had only a couple real perceptions of what LA was. And when I think back on them, they are informed by like television opening credits. Like I think of um, the $25,000 pyramid and like a big studio. They said from Television City in Hollywood, which is among the craziest statements that can ever be said. And uh, I just remember being like, well, there's like giant studios there. And in fact, there's this other game show called Greed, which came on and it was a competitor to Who oh, Wants yeah. to Be a Millionaire at the time. And yeah. Chuck Woolery was the host. And yeah. that that was in LA as opposed to New York, like millionaire. And uh, the, the opening had this um, nefarious announcer and he said, from Los Angeles, it's the most dangerous game in America. And they flashed over <laughs> downtown LA in the dark. So I kind of thought it looked like New York before I came here. And lo and behold, I get here and had was blown away at what it was. So I, all my perceptions were wrong and it took forever to correct them. So what is your earliest memory of California? And I guess, why do you think that stuck with you? I remember when I first, I took my internship here with The Advocate, and I remember when I applied to it, thinking it was going to be in New York, because Out Magazine was there, and I figured Advocate was there too, but it wasn't, it was in LA. So I got it, flew here, and I took, I I wonder if these still exist, a super shuttle from the airport to my, (laughs) the Airbnb I was, or uh, I guess, apartment I was staying in West LA, Mm -hmm. and uh, it took forever to get there. So I remember thinking L.A. was simply gigantic. There were no landmarks at all in sight. Mm -hmm. So it was just like taking Sepulveda up to maybe the 405 and dropping six other people off in other Uh corridors of L.A. that I couldn't name. You know, I remember stopping in Santa Monica and going up to the valley, and then they finally got back to me in West L.A. So it just seemed vast and actually pretty flat outside of um, the hills. And then confusing. Like it was just streets and streets and streets and streets. Like in a way, I mean, everybody says it's like a million suburbs put together, but that really was my perception immediately. 
do you have another like most enduring or most significant memory of California once you kind of got established here that kind of said, I'm a Californian, now I know it? Hmm. Well, I, I do remember it took me a long time, as in months and months, to stop singing uh, All I Want to Do by Sheryl Crow every time I walked on Santa Monica Boulevard. <laughs> I didn't realize it was such a fixture in your life here. Like right. you had to interact yeah. with Santa Monica Boulevard. Yeah. Um, so I, I remember thinking, well, I'm clearly a tourist until that goes away. Right. So uh, that lasted months and months. That's so interesting because there's a New York Times feature that came out recently, California songs, like the soundtrack, right? And all I want to do is on that list. And I, I know there's that line in the chorus about, you know, the sun coming up over Santa Monica Boulevard. But I thought, like, that's not really a California song. Like, that line is in there. But, I mean, when you think of California songs, I think of, like, the Beach Boys or whatever. So right. I went back and I listened to it. And, like, that song, that song's totally a California song. Like, they're in the bar. There's the car wash. There's all this other stuff. Like, it's absolutely there. So I totally salute you kind of having that, you know, uh, that kind of seared in your memory and seared in your mind. And why that might be front of mind until you, and why you feel like a tourist. But it generally is a California song. I think by you having that in your head, that made you a Californian. Okay, well, I'm glad to hear it because it, it really does capture like the LA dankness. Yeah, you know, just the like, the, like the the pace that things actually go yeah. around here. Uh, uh, so it's I, sneaky I, that way. I, I was shocked. It, it kind of reminds me of if you've ever seen the Jane Fonda movie The Morning After, which oh, is yeah. an LA movie. Sure. At the beginning, that movie to me feels like that song. So anyway. Okay. Maybe we can mash those up, Wizard of Oz, Dark Side of the Moon style sometime. I, I love it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I think also uh, when I first moved to L.A., uh, Kyle Buchanan, who we both worked with at Movie Line, right. he was one of the first people I knew. He was the film critic at The Advocate. Now, of course, he's the film writer for The New York Times. Mm -hmm. And uh, he invited me to an all-gay poker night and that was like my second or third day in LA. And I went, and at the time, by the way, uh, when I moved here eventually, I lived in Inglewood, California, because that's where uh, our, our job was headquartered, if you right. remember. Oh yeah, sure, yeah, in Lestanica, yeah. yeah. Correct, and uh, so I drove to his place, which is in Atwater Village, and there were, you know, 25 gay guys there, most of whom are still really good friends of mine. But I remember I had never been confronted with talking with that many other gay men before and realizing, all my little tricks that made me like the novel person in a friend group were very well represented elsewhere. Like I really had to rearrange and uh, re-up my arsenal. And I was like, wow, I'm going to make a reference to Jody Watley. And they've already heard five <laughs> other Jody Watley jokes today. You know? Right. So that was immediately sort of like cynicism making. Like I was like, fuck, I need to, I need to figure out something to do. I need to figure out a new personality. All gay poker night sounds like a, like a really uh, tough hazing ritual. Like how did you do that night? Well, I actually did win, uh, and which is helped by the fact that I have a serious competitive streak. That I that I've been confronted by several friends about Lewis tone that down because <laughs> I don't I don't go to game nights unless they turn into a Who's Afraid of Virginia Wolf like affair. Right, right That's exactly. Like who I am shrieking and like recriminations just you know abound. You know, right? <laughs> yes, rancor. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Okay. Uh, and uh, uh, so I won, but I they quickly became friends. I, I became acquainted with how inviting the people of LA were. Also, Kyle happens to curate a good group of friends, as he'll tell you himself. Yeah, sure, of course. Do you have a favorite California place or region, some sort of geography that influences or impacts you? Well, here comes yet another gay answer. Um, I... I came late to things like gay debauchery, which LA does very well, you know, mm -hmm. just like rowdy hangouts, et cetera. And there's a place in San Diego called Black's Beach, 
which is this uh, gay nude beach, which is huge and long. And in order to access it, you park in this parking lot and then you immediately have to descend like a gigantic ledge and like uh, basically fall into this crevasse until you get to the bottom. It takes forever. And if you're carrying anything, it's super treacherous. But there's this bridge to Terabithia quality where you have to cross <laughs> over into this magical land uh-huh. in order to get there. Right. And so once you get there, you're, you're immediately rewarded. So already endorphins are flowing. Sure. And then, of course, it's like the Olympics of gay hotness are also there. So you've, you've reached this magical unicornville. And uh, it's, it's extremely relaxing. You can obviously have a very... I'm, I'm batting my eyelashes. Intense time there, if you'd like. Right. But um, it's... I just had no idea anything like that ever existed. <laughs> like, you know, you, you like you can hardly look that up. So mm-hmm. uh, I, I'm always thrilled to go there. I love the San Diego area, in fact. Uh, but within L.A., my favorite place, I really do love Forest Lawn Cemetery. Yeah. Because uh, in the same way that I love the Hollywood Walk of Fame, which is not a popular answer. <laughs> Because if you ever go to the Hollywood Walk of Fame, and I don't know if people understand this, it is definitely just a sidewalk with yeah. tourist attractions along Hollywood Boulevard. Right. It's basically a mall. Mm-hmm. It, it it has the feeling of Back to the Future 2 uh, dystopia right. abounding. Right. But it does memorialize so many names that have been forgotten. You'll walk down the street and see, I don't know, like Dorothy McGuire or, mm-hmm. um, you know, uh, uh, Dorothy Kilgallen. People name Dorothy, frankly. And uh, and I'm just a, a big old names person. I love uh, keeping up on that stuff. I love watching old movies. And to mm-hmm. see that represented on a street and not on a Wikipedia page is somehow life-affirming for me. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about your work. And bear with me here, because some of this might seem or sound a little tiny bit overdetermined. I was looking back at this one before we talked, but I really was thinking about uh, why I wanted to talk to you is just kind of about your range of experience, you know, mm-hmm. and, and just how that relates to the California experience and like things you can only do in California work. You can only do and a range of work experience and, and life experience. You can only really have here. When I look at your work, you know, your profile as a public figure intersects with this really unique set of California experience. I mean, you're a TV writer on Jimmy Kimmel live. Uh, you're the co-host of the podcast, keep it from crooked media, as well as Oscars red carpet host. Are you doing that again this year? Not this year, no. I did. I've did it, did it two years in a row. But like, my feeling about that is, I'm sorry. They're always going to have me back. Like, I somebody planted an Oscars microchip in me, and I'm sorry. It's going to drag me back to the Dolby. I know it. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Right. So you've done that, and you also, of course, went viral as a Jeopardy contestant. So we've got late night. We've got a podcast. We've got awards shows, red carpet. We've got a game show, and that has got to be some sort of like California pop culture entertainment industry grand slam, right? It's like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what else is even left? Right, right, right. So do you even, I mean, do you think of the, these distinctions that way? Like, do you ever let that range of experience that you've had at this point in your life sink in or how you got to that? It is puzzling based on the fact that I had no idea what LA was basically before I lived here. But it's the kind of thing that comes to mind when people talk to me about, uh, oh, you know, why don't you live in New York or why don't, you know, why, why settle here? Not that there's like a, a grudge match between New York and L.A. with gay men or I guess there's a, more of one between L.A. and SF. But it, when that comes up, I think I absolutely cannot do this anywhere else. Right. And I also the, the friends I've made here, my best friends here are also awards 
game show and comedy oriented. Wow. So like not only can I only do my thing here, I could only meet those people here. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, you know, it may seem like my skill set makes me, you know, one of a kind, but I, I think I've gotten together the 15 other people who <laughs> have been on Jeopardy and then also want to talk about whatever, stage door with Katherine Hepburn all day. <laughs> it's like EGOT, but for, yes. you know... <laughs> a certain subset, yes, yeah. So let's take uh, all of these one at a time, starting with Kimmel. What does your role as a writer for Kimmel entail? Uh, it's the comedy job that is most like writing for a newspaper and that you get up every morning early and though the night before you're given like a preview of what the topics of that monologue will be, the morning after at 7 a.m. we get the real top, like all the topics, and then we write jokes and sketch ideas to that. And we have an hour and 50 minutes to write it. And I sit there with coffee. I'm up like there's no lights on in my apartment. And I'm, you know, shivering. And, you know, it, it looks like a Christopher Nolan movie or something. It's really grim. <laughs> and I pound it out. And you uh, then you wait an, uh, an hour or two. And on Tuesdays, that's when I pr uh, record my podcast from home. Mm -hmm. But most of the time, I'm just waiting to hear back, you know, what did Jimmy pick? Did he pick any of your jokes? Did he pick any of your sketches? Sometimes you absolutely slayed and you feel like, you know, a late night legend. You feel like Dick Cavett or something. Right, yeah. And then other nights you're like, damn, I truly missed. But if you missed, there's still opportunity later in the day to get jokes on the show because uh, Jimmy will have like a news clip or something and he needs jokes to say after that. Um, so you're basically waiting around to fill in joke gaps throughout the day or cover a bit that's being filmed. Sometimes I'll come into the office and there'll be a sketch and the director needs to talk to me about, was that funny enough? Is there anything we could have added there? So it's a lot of buffering previously written work, uh, uh, change, uh, sending stuff to Jimmy and then he sends you edits back. He is a whiz comedy line editor. He's, I mean, he's truly wow. like the, the Ben Bradley of, of, uh, of, joke writing. Like I'll do a monologue on the air, which I, I just did one this week on the Oscars actually. Mm -hmm. And then he'll listen line per line and be like, like literally this week he said, this is supposed to be from a gay guy's perspective. You have to get rid of the Nic Nicolas Cage reference and put some woman right there. Mm -hmm. And then I was like, all right, I'll make it Jessica Chastain. He's like, that's exactly who it should be. So yeah. I don't know if you can answer this uh, because I, I don't know to what extent you worked in a New York writer's room um, or if it's even relevant, but like what distinguishes an L.A. or California writer's room from a New York writer's room or California late night from L.A. late night? I mean, aside from like the backdrops and like dusky sunsets versus like twinkling high rises. <laughs> I'm going to have to go with happiness. Uh, and I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> the drops. Uh, right. Yes, that. Um, <laughs> I did. Uh, my, one of my first writing jobs was I wrote for Billy on, on the street uh -huh. in New York. So I, did, I went there for three months in uh, 2016. To write on that, Billy's still largely LA-based now. He's a great friend of mine. Uh, and if I'm comparing those two experiences, what would I say is similar about them? Well, I'll, I will say this. As my friend Matt Whitaker said, who's a New York-based writer, he goes, the difference between writing in LA and writing in New York is your phone charges on the way to work in LA. And I feel like <laughs> I, I feel like everyone in LA is similarly rested and recharged, generally yeah. speaking. Yeah. Whereas the restlessness powers the room in New York. Oh, I love it. Okay, how did uh, Vertel it like it is come up? Uh, I did. Okay, so this is a monologue segment I do on Kimmel from time to time. I've only done it four times now, but uh, late last year, 
I want to say one of the head writers reached out to me. There was some topic involving, like, uh, Marvel films and gay characters or something. Anyway, something where Jimmy would probably not be the pundit you would reach out to for comedy or insight on it. (laughs) And they were like, why don't you go out there and say something? And so put together a short three-minute monologue. And by the way, I'm not Marvel-oriented at all. I had to do my homework on this. But, um, and then the second time I did it, we had guest hosts in the summer, and I think I did it next with Wanda Sykes as a guest host, who I, who I know a little bit and I've worked with before, and Sarah Silverman. Mm-hmm. And by that time, we decided it would be a semi-regular feature. And we have this guy on the show who's uh, now one of the head writers. His name's Josh Holloway, and he is... People like to claim they are punny. This person is a machine. I've never mm-hmm. seen anything like it. Mm-hmm. He, in fact, has named the film. He was responsible for coming up with titles for movies at one point in his career, and he named the movies It's Complicated, The Guilt Trip with Barbara Streisand and Seth Rogen, really? and Transformers Dark of the Moon. Like, he literally, he, he sat, somebody asked him, Josh, please name these films, and then he did it. It's That's very a crazy. Thing? Yes, I'm. Is that not the most LA job you've ever heard in your life? Unbelievable. Yeah, and uh, so he one day was like, "Vertel it like it is." Pointed at me and said that, and I was like, "Okay, well, I'm gonna have to go with it since you're, you know, you're you're, you're the Yale of 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 this category." So, did you imagine yourself on camera uh, in this context? I mean, obviously you did Jeopardy, which we'll talk about in a second. But did you ever imagine yourself when you were in the back of the super subtle? <laughs> Coming here to be the intern for the advocate. Did you think, oh, one of these days I'm going to be on camera. Like, I really want to do late night, whether in the writing context or obviously on camera. Did that ever, like, occur to you as something you could or would or eventually should do? Yeah. Well, when I was in high school, I sort of thought I would be an actor. This ambition went away. But once upon a time, I thought that would be my thing. I kind of thought I'd be, like, a Second City guy. Like, I would, you know, have my wacky, you know crate of characters I would wheel out for the rest of time, you know, like Vicki Lawrence still doing Mama's Family on the road. I kind of thought that would be me. And uh, uh, eventually, you know, you get to L.A. and then, at least for me, I had five ideas that ha- that sort of continue to coalesce. Like, I want to be an entertainment writer. I want to be a comic in some regard. I want to be a talker in some regard. The person I most relate to in terms of work ethic and ambition is Fran Lebowitz. Because okay. it feels like I should write a book. But honestly, I would rather just say the book to friends. So that's that's where my conundrum is. I want to go back to something you mentioned just a few minutes ago about kind of the, the analog to the newspaper and, and newsrooms. Because it feels like writer's rooms, at least the idea of writer's rooms as, as we know them today or perceive them today, they've kind of got this like public mythology, you know, I don't know if that's the right word, but in recent years that has developed and that's not something I felt like they've always had, you know, um, outside the industry anyway, but now they're like these mystical places that seem to kind of shape our understanding of American life, kind of like what newsrooms used to be in the public imagination, you know, mm-hmm. um, and, and we see them in movies all the time, but now I feel like, you know, the newsroom still has a little bit of that flavor, but writer's rooms, I don't know. I think that that is kind of the 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 new kind of nexus, really, of of a lot of folks' understanding of the world. Do you sense that at all as and that kind of maybe like a responsibility even that the writer's room has? Well, there's certainly a lot of mythology around how comic writers communicate with each other. And in particular in writer's rooms, you know, the hierarchy of whose taste is always respected and who's the underling, who's you know, uh, uh, 
trying to get their voice heard? Are, are people being represented enough? You know, the diversity in writers' rooms is a, a very interesting situation to me. Right. Um, I, I mean, it, it's weird. To, I, I'm the only gay writer on my show, for example, and it's interesting to be that person because in my own life, I am one of 90 people talk, who is who is gay, talking, mm-hmm. being funny with everybody else. Mm-hmm. So it's just, I feel like a different person, a, a different uh, tool, honestly, uh, at work than I do among my friends, uh, just in terms of bringing anything to the table. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, I, I think people are curious who gets to be a god in a writer's room. Because it does mm-hmm. feel like there's, you know, somebody is leading the way and everybody mm-hmm. else is writing to that way, you know. Right. How did you get involved with Keep It and the folks at Crooked Media? So for years, uh, Ira Madison, who's the main host of Keep It or the, the first host of Keep It, I guess. I shouldn't downplay my own achievements. but <laughs> You're so modest. I know. I know. He was somebody I knew for years and he was somebody who I would get into fights about pop culture with at Akbar, which is the main East Side gay bar in L.A., about whatever. I remember one time he was laying into Taylor Swift on Twitter, and I'm not a Swifty, but I remember saying, you're bad-mouthing her for being, you're, you're saying she is too political, and then saying Beyonce doesn't have to be political if she doesn't want to. It's like, I, I, I was correcting him about his hypocrisy, which still abounds, by the way. And <laughs> uh, so I think when he was putting the show together, he had a relationship with John Lovett pre- previously, who's like one of the main three crooked media guys. Right. Uh, he was like, well, I think we should maybe audition the Oscars encyclopedia guy who can't shut up about pop culture. And so <laughs> I, I, I think I was in the first duo of people to audition for the show. And then I was in every audition afterwards, like they chose me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yeah, from then on, I, I sort of knew this is exactly what I should be doing. More than any other job I've ever had in LA, this is the thing I feel like I should be doing. Really? I feel like I'm... I have a nervous energy. Like I'm maybe not an intuitive choice for a podcast in certain ways, but I am, it is the way I prefer to express my enthusiasm for pop culture. I would rather talk than write. Okay. Right. Um, And Crooked feels like another kind of distinctly California phenomenon. Those guys obviously fled the East coast. They're former Obama staffers. They fled the DC machine, the white house, and they started a production, a podcast production company in Los Angeles. I mean, I imagine it could exist anywhere or, or could it, could crooked exist anywhere else? How do you think it's influenced by LA? It's an interesting question to me because sometimes I am blown away that they live here because they are like, like John Favreau is not somebody you meet and you, and you immediately think, Oh, he wants to, I don't know, headline a hilarious review or something. He doesn't strike me as distinctly showbiz when I talk to him, even though he's obviously a great podcaster. Sure. But, but it does, I assume they just had their fill of Washington, DC. They had done, they, they had, you know, checked that off their list and just wanted to live anywhere else and ended up here. Do I think now having been around it for a few years, they found ways to turn this podcast into an HBO show and, uh, uh, there are TV ideas for keep it in the works and things. So now it feels distinctly LA, but that wasn't always intuitive to me at the time. I did think that was pretty crazy once upon a time. What are the TV ideas for keep it? Oh, they they have been many. Now we're hammering out ways to base uh, make it telegenic, honestly. But uh, it's been everything. It's been do we just film the podcast as is with us talking? Do we go out and visit other pop cultural locations? We're hammering it out at the moment, but. I'm optimistic it'll turn into something where I'm 
on air and screaming about, you know, which of Mariah Carey's 19 number one hits is the definitive one. And that would actually be on a network. Potentially. Yeah, hopefully. Wow. Okay. Well, cool. Fingers crossed. Thank you. Yeah, you famously appeared on Jeopardy in 2015, mm-hmm. snapping your way into America's heart right. after nailing a daily double. Um, did you know that you wanted to do that, the snap, or was it just spontaneous when you got that daily double right? Well, eagle eye viewers will notice that at the beginning of the episode, when Johnny Gilbert introduces me as a, I forget what I was, a writer and hack from Los Angeles, I don't know what it was, <laughs> I actually do a little snap like, here comes the gay guy. Here I am. Uh, okay. But at the same time, I snap intuitively all the time. If I believe uh, I've made a point, if uh, I win a game, if I got in your face, I, it, it literally is what occurs to me, uh, you know, compulsively. As I remember one time years and years ago, I was home from college and I was supposed to put dishes away or something. And my brother, Mark, was like, hey, Lewis, how about you put your dish in the sink? And I got in his face. I was like snapping. I said, I don't do dishes. And I did it <laughs> on the spot. And he goes, wow, you really just do that. Like he, my own family <laughs> is blown away that I resemble a caricature on In Living Color. So, But no, I didn't think I was going to do it when I got a Daily Double or something. It really, you can see the angst in my face. Like I am a deeply competitive person and snapping is an efficient way to express it. Yeah, but that relief, that relief when you knew the yes. response like that that's the thing that comes through you know even more than the snap that relief it's like oh i'm gonna get this right like it's gonna succeed like it's gonna work <laughs> you know i love that that's that's my favorite part of the whole clip so yeah and well up until that point i i was doing like okay but like the champion was really like pulling ahead and jeopardy is definitely still even though i lost the game i was born to play so it felt mm-hmm. crazy to be that far behind so for it to finally come together in that moment. That is what you are witnessing. What is the environment like at a game show? Uh, like behind the scenes anyway at, at, at Sony Picture Studios. Because um, I always envision game shows as being like this rolling cast of outsiders coming to LA and kind of hanging out in this bubble for like 24 to 48 hours or more. I guess if they do really well, but um, then they're gone, right? So what was your experience uh, and you know, kind of observations there? I've been on three game shows, and I've been on one twice. So I was on this game show, The Chase, which is now in prime time here at, uh, in the States, but it's a British game show that originally came to uh, uh, U- the U.S. in about 2013, and I won $38,000 on that. Um, so then I did Jeopardy in 2015. In 2019, I was on Who Wants to Be a Millionaire, which the daytime syndicated version, which then was hosted by Chris Harrison from The Bachelor, formerly of The Bachelor who uh, I won $30,000 on that. And uh, I was on it again in the primetime version hosted by Jimmy Kimmel as Jane Fonda's in-person lifeline for the first 11 questions. So I got to sit with Jane Fonda and help her answer trivia questions. Now, you can't see this in my house since this is a podcast, but I have posters of Jane Fonda all over this place. She's Uh my number one movie star. It remains, Uh it's like, to say it was a childhood fantasy to get to play a game show with Jane Fonda, it's, I mean, it's like, it, it's like I, I'm on an acid trip that didn't end. I can't, I can't believe me, Lewis, that got to happen to. But the experience of being on these game shows is both tedious and intense because you know the game is coming and they're going to tape it. But for example, on The Chase, the first game show I did, I waited probably six hours until my episode aired. So I was like stuck with the other contestants I was playing with in my episode in a blank green room 
Maybe they had food for us at one point, but that was until 8 until 3 p.m. Now, Jeopardy! is a really slickly run operation. You get there at 8 a.m. on the Sony lot in Culver City. It takes forever to get there from the east side where I lived. And you immediately fill out a ton of paperwork as the most rambunctious woman you've ever met tells you every rule in the book. Every <laughs> rule. Every uh-huh. rule. Okay. And you sit there and you sort of size up the competition and they make you... Uh, introduce yourself like you're ta- doing the contestant interview bit and they'll say things like I can't even hear you like scream in your face for not being showbiz enough and so you like that I'm prepared for but you know librarians from you know St. Paul Minnesota probably less inclined to be super loud all the time so is that what you mean by sizing up the competition like what does that exactly entail well you're wondering because if you're in a room with all these other people they randomly draw the names of who will play in the games that day because they film five episodes of Jeopardy in a single day okay. so you don't know who you're playing against and but all the suspects are there so it's a real Hercule Poirot situation hmm. and uh, you'll be like wow am I playing that really mouthy guy who appears to know everything and wants everybody to know it or am I playing that grandmother of eight who hasn't said a word all day you know and what does she have to hide so, and then you, 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 you uh, practice at the buzzer with the other contestants. They have a dummy game where you answer questions. And that's another intimidating thing. Because I think I'm going to go there and slay every question. I'm born to play this game. I grew up playing video games. The buzzer should be easy. And a, a woman who was definitely twice my age beat me to the buzzer five times in a row. I remember that distinctly. Wow. You know. I'm not somebody who was used to feeling emasculated. There's something about coming out as gay where you don't have to go through that anymore. And I, and yet, at that moment, I was. Was it an advantage being an Angelino in that context? Yes. Well, I'll say this. Um, if they always have two contestants from the L.A. area there because they need one extra contestant in case, in case like another contestant gets sick or something. So one person... Typically, an L.A. player doesn't play, and they bring that person back the next day where they will definitely play or another week or something. Okay. So if you're from L.A., you usually watch at least four games before you're even eligible to play since you may end up being the extra player. And you were not the extra player, though. You went out that day. Correct. Correct. Yes. All right. All right. Wow. I'm learning so much. This is fascinating. I don't know if there's anything more Hollywood than the Oscars red carpet where you've worked as a host several times. And when did you start doing that? I did that 2019 and 2020. And I also, and I've done like a, I've, I've been like a CNN talking head panelist about the Oscars and stuff too. Right. And so how did the red carpet opportunity arise in the first place? I remember it was New Year's of 2019. I was with friends in... Tokyo. And by the way, I am deeply American. So it is wild that I am. I'm just not travel oriented. So it was shocking that I was there anyway. And around New Year's Day, I got an email from the Academy wondering if I would do the red carpet. And I remember thinking, well, this is it. Like I, I have no ambitions left. I'm supposed to do this. Yeah. So, um, I, you know, I'm, I'm somebody who knows, I know all the Oscars by year and not just like best picture. I know all the acting categories by right. year, yeah, typically yeah, yeah. most of the nominees. So, and, and I had the feeling because it was the Academy, it wouldn't just be me interviewing, you know, Laura Dern or Al Pacino or like the familiar faces who walked on the red carpet, but like the below the line people. Mm-hmm. So I was really excited to get to do that, too. Mm-hmm. Um, and, I, and I knew I'd be capable of doing it. So 
I, th I think it came to me because somebody at the Academy listens to me on Keep It where I can't shut up about the Oscars. I make it, I make it a well-known part of myself. What don't people see on TV when they watch the red carpet? Kind of demystify it for us, de-glam it for us. Sure. Um, I think, well, first of all, among red carpets, the Oscars is a much more uh, steady situation. Red carpets are chaos, generally speaking, in that if you go to like an opening of an event or something and there's you know, let's, we'll say 10 journalists, a small red carpet for a le whatever, like an event, uh, um, like the, the new Latisse eyelash thing came out and Brooke Shields is going to be here. This is just what's coming to mind. Sure. Um, like publicists are getting in reporters face being like, do you want to interview this other client you've never heard of who is like the ninth lead on an upcoming, you know, uh, Reels channel show? And you're like, wait, what? Like, I didn't even know this person was going to be here. And then sometimes in order to get the other client that you do want to talk to, you then talk to that person in an event that you were suspicious or uh, you, you were like, I have four, six questions for you, random person. Right. So at the Oscars, everybody is only like the major outlets are there. And it's, it's just and only uh, the people in the Oscars are there. So it's just people you've heard of and people who are nominated and maybe other actors in the movies. But, you know, who everybody involved since they're such huge movies. In the case of what I do, which is a live Twitter stream, uh, they hustle people off the red carpet. I, someone's in, an, in my earpiece, which, by the way, I am terrible at handling. Ryan Seacrest really deserves credit for doing this extremely well. <laughs> okay. I'll be talking to whomever, a cinematographer, and somebody will be in my ear being like, okay, quick change. We've got Diane Warren. Okay, Diane Warren is bum-rushing us. And so <laughs> then you've got to... Introduce Diane Warren quickly, and then that's when the Wikipedia part of my brain really takes over. And sometimes there'll be a teleprompter copy for me, but oftentimes I'll add something like, "And here she is on her thirteenth nomination. My personal yeah. favorite is There You'll Go from There You Go. Oh, wait, uh, There You'll Be from Pearl Harbor. It's Diane Warren." And then she'll say, "Thank you for saying that. That's my favorite show." And we have to pretend it was just a friendly moment that we've <laughs> that we've greeted her with when really somebody just hustled her here, and I've had to push a cinematographer into you know traffic in order for this to happen. And it's got to help to like know that Diane Warren has never won an Oscar despite like all these nominations. And so because you right. have this comprehensive awareness and familiarity with the Oscars, right? So you can just kind of like miracle something together. Yeah. And it's a relief to have that knowledge at a place like the Oscars where you realize most reporters, I mean, most reporters aren't, for instance, Kyle Buchanan, who does know everything about these act actors. Most reporters have some familiarity, but it's their duty to basically ask the same four questions again and again. Right. And it's my, it's my personal pleasure to say something that hasn't been asked that night. I remember one time Gina Davis rolled through. I think she was getting an honorary Oscar that year. And I said, man, when you won your Oscar, you were up against Francis McDormand, uh, Joan Cusack, Michelle Pfeiffer, and Sigourney Weaver. That's got to be one of the toughest lineups ever. And I can tell she hadn't been confronted with how, this is the 1988, 1988 Best Supporting Actress win. Sure. And she said, she's like, you're right, that was a tough category. She goes, and of course I admire those actresses. And she goes, you know, Barbara Walters said, I don't know who's going to win that night, but it's not going to be Gina Davis. Oh. And I was like, to get that tidbit from her live on air, I was like, okay, I'm like good at this. I can, I should do this. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> What was Frances McDormand nominated for? Mississippi Burning. Oh, that's right. Mm -hmm. All right. Okay. I mean, how, I guess, why did you learn so much about the Oscars? I mean, how do you remember all this shit? I am heartened by the fact that this is an affliction that hits tons of gay men and, and uh, in fact, queer women. Uh, uh, 
I, I, but so I meet a lot of people like this actually in the LA area. I'm not alone, but I think what it does is I have a really good memory for years of things. That's always been something that's aided me in remembering trivia. Okay. And the Oscars are so organized by year. Here are the 20 acting nominations for just this year, you know? And so categorically, it really satisfies like the Dewey Decimal System going on in my brain. It mm -hmm. really, everything always fits. And so that's when like, now that they have 10 Best Picture nominees, that really upsets me a little bit. It does something to like the catalog work I'm doing in my spare time. Right, it kind of slips the gears a little bit. Yeah, it's too, it's too much. Mm -hmm. So what has this kind of corpus of work, I guess, revealed to you about California that you found most compelling or even surprising? I think I remain shocked that I could meet a ton of people who are like me here. I really thought that was a New York thing. I thought in order to meet, you know, I, I, I guess funny or um, people who want to be witty, I, that's something I associate with um, New York, you know, like the kind of cosmopolitan sensibility of, you know, the Algonquin round table. I really associated that with, with that area. And I'm thrilled to realize I could meet so much of that here. I mean, I, I really thought, I guess in the abstract, it was a land of, you know, models and actors. And I'm so psyched to learn, no, this is totally where I belong. And, and, and people who have made me so much funnier, like that's the quality I value most about myself. So if there are people out there who find me unfunny, great. Don't say it to me. It's something I like about myself. <laughs> um, uh, uh, and yeah, I guess I'm just shocked to belong here so much, even though everything I've ever wanted to do involves being in California. <laughs> I see. Right. So let's just kind of zoom out to the bigger picture as we kind of wind down here. What is the biggest challenge that you think California faces and how can that challenge be surmounted? Hmm. Well, I think if we're talking about serious problems, I think one thing they can do is lessen, is listen less to people like me who are just loudmouths who get to talk on TV for all these other reasons. Mm -hmm. And so that doesn't mean I'm wise. That doesn't mean I have anthropological insight. It mm -hmm. just means I have an amazing memory. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> and a couple of jokes. So uh, I think just clarifying who our spokespeople are is maybe a California problem. Um, I was shocked recently on Kimmel, we had Arnold Schwarzenegger and I, I, I don't interact with the guests. I'm not part of the talent department or anything. But even just hearing the name, I, it just blows me away that he is who he is in not just California history, but American history. And mm -hmm. I feel like we something went awry for us in that moment that <laughs> I wish we could have recovered at the time. <laughs> so uh, in your experience discussing California with people outside the state, what do you find they most misunderstand about California? Well, we're lumped in with coastal elites all the time. And almost everybody I meet is from Cleveland. Everybody I meet is from <laughs> Pittsburgh or, you know, where I'm from, uh, Chicago. I, ca I can't stop meeting Chicagoans here. I, I feel like people don't want to admit that California is a place people not only go to, but end up not only just loving it, but feeling relieved to be here. I feel relieved to be in California. I, I mean, I guess it's because I spent a childhood in Chicago and a, a college experience in Iowa, but I really associate a lot of my upbringing with it being dark outside and dark in general. Sure. And 
I'm look, I'm somebody who has the complexion of like Nicole Kidman or Elle Fanning. I shouldn't be in the sun that much. And I can't tell you how grateful I am to be in the sun constantly. Yeah. Yeah. Do you, I mean, but do you ever like feel like, like climate anxiety or like drought oh, anxiety yes. or any, any of those things, despite like kind of like the, 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 the pre- your happiness at being present here. Like, does it ever get anxious or just like overwhelming or un- unbearable for you? Certainly. I mean, like when you live in California, you turn on the news and expect to see someone basically hitting all the buttons on Sim City and turning it into a citywide disaster. You expect to see a flood or a fire or Bowser attacked or whatever, you know? Right. I mean, it, yeah. it's easy to be, I don't want to say desensitized to it, but aware of the constant roiling environmental problems. You know, that's just a part of your life here. I mean, Mm -hmm. even I know people kind of love Twitter for when an earthquake occurs and, you know, oh, it's a 3.4, whatever. That's another anxiety. If it were just earthquakes, you would have a low level of anxiety, but it's not, you know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's it's all of the uh, arch nemeses of earthly life. Yeah, (laughs) right. We end every episode with the same question for all guests. Who is your favorite Californian and why? I thought a lot about this when I saw this in the outline. And I kept thinking, I know there is one person. I kept thinking like high-minded about it. I was like, is it like Ansel Adams or Muir or who else could it be? Then I had it. You can see her over my shoulder here, right there. Uh, My favorite is Karen Carpenter. Uh, She is a transplant, born in New Haven, Connecticut. Moved here when she was 13 with her incredibly talented older brother Richard and their family. They lived in Downey, California. And in fact, there's something about watching Karen Carpenter say the word Downey. Like there's an A before the O, Downey. Mm-hmm. It almost <laughs> has a Chicagoan thing in it, but she's obviously not from Chicago. Sure. But I just, uh, there are a few people in pop culture who to me have no parallels. And she is one of these people where it's not just the extraordinary vocal ability, it's the she just was able to channel something that was so meaningful every single time. And to say it was pitch perfect is underestimating what she does. What she did was, it was a kind of effortlessness that was transcendent. And I I don't mean to say people shouldn't sound like they're not trying when they're singing, but my God, did she sound like she was not trying. Right. And her whole story is so wrapped into California. They, you know, uh, if you go to Long Beach, there's a big old, uh, Cal State Long Beach, there's a big old Carpenter's tribute there. They made their mark on a uh, battle of the bands that John Wayne was the judge of. And in fact, he saw Karen Carpenter was like, you should try out for this movie I'm doing. And she auditioned for the Kim Darby role in True Grit. She uh, did? Isn't that so weird? Like, Whoa. <laughs> it would have been a totally different life for her. Yeah. But um, you, you mentioned before Beach Boys, uh, I think of Fleetwood Mac when I think of Southern California. But really, I think of the Carpenters and how... They all of their ambitions came to LA very organically. Like they had to be here. And I know very few things about my future. It's my pleasure to take life as an adventure, but I absolutely know I will be a hardcore Carpenters fan for the rest of my life. So that's one certainty I'm thrilled about. And she was a smoking drummer. Oh my God. No, I love when they're, this happens about every six months now. A viral clip of Karen drumming happens. Mm-hmm. And, you know, whether it's like Quest Love posting on Instagram or something. I'm like, good. The people need to know. I mean, Mm -hmm. we're still getting over the kind of tainted 
perception of the Carpenters that happened because of when they emerged in popular culture. You know, like the Led Zeppelin was the defining gestalt of when they were happening. And we never got to just, even though they were extremely popular, I don't think we just got to accept that they were as talented as they are and amazing as they are. And there's, and we don't need to add any judgment about it. Yeah. So yeah. Um, I love those stories of Richard Carpenter just like cracking the whip in rehearsals, like just absolutely yeah. flawless performances from the studio players and and on live performances, obviously, just, you know, uh, and just that high standard. I think that's something that I've always kept with me, just thinking like, don't screw this up, you know, like yes. just get it exactly right. I was thinking, what would the Carpenters do? You know, that's <laughs> sincerely like that's, that's ever since I, I, I think I saw a documentary about them and, and that just, you know, kind of really, really uh, crisp and uh, just unerring attention to detail is something that really inspired me. Though didn't um, Karen Carpenter have like some weird like oversexed solo album? Oh, she did. And I am a fan. Uh, it's, <laughs> it's out. It's called Karen Carpenter. Uh-huh. And uh, it was it was held up, though. Like, it was not released yes, for a long time. And, right. Correct. And, and also it was supposed to be a huge deal. Like she spent right. forever on it. Right. And then like there's a famous story of they took it to the whatever the A&R meeting and people sat there in silence listening to songs called My Body Keeps Changing My Mind, which is a great disco song. So I don't know what they were hearing, but you know, I, I agree with the crispness. I and mean, there's something so just amazing about the relationship of Richard and Karen and how they both had a vision of perfection that only the other one could provide. Yeah. It's such an interesting relationship. Louis Fertel, it's been great talking to you. Thank you so much for being with us. What a stimulating and fabulous conversation. I'm glad to have had it with you, Stu. Thank you. All right. There you have it. That was Louis Fertel. Thank you to Louis for being on What is California, episode 20. And thank you again, dear listener, for getting us to this point. So grateful for your listenership and uh, for sharing, subscribing, and just, you know, sending all around good vibes to keep this show going as long as it has. Here's to 20 more and maybe 20 more beyond that, or really just one more. I would be happy with just one more at this point. (laughs) So uh, one at a time. All right. Um, Thank you very much. What is California is produced and hosted and edited by me, Stu Van Arsdale. Our theme music is by Sound Supreme. You can find us on Twitter at WhatCalifornia and subscribe to the free Substack newsletter at whatiscalifornia.substack.com. That will get you a free podcast in your inbox every Thursday morning and a cool roundup of California-related weekend links in your inbox every Friday. Once again, that's free to sign up. Please run. Don't walk. Whatiscalifornia.substack.com. You'll find it there. You can also support What Is California on Patreon at patreon.com slash whatiscalifornia. If you want to chip in a few shekels to keep the cloud servers running, keep our headquarters cat fed. Thanks, Elsie. You can email me anytime. I'm at hello at whatiscalifornia.com. I would love to hear from you. Any questions, comments, concerns, love notes, hate mail, other stuff I haven't even thought of yet. Go ahead and send that my way. I'd appreciate it. And of course, please, please, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. If you liked What is California, please rate it and review it on Apple Podcasts. It really helps new listeners find us, and I would be most appreciative. And that's going to do it from What is California HQ in beautiful Sacramento, California. Thanks again for listening. I will catch you next time. Until then, remember, as always, keep your eye on the bear.